Father, what a privilege is ours to come into your presence in the name of this King Jesus, who is so worthy of our praise. Father, as we are on the threshold now of the Advent and Christmas season, we recognize that we live in a culture that tries to distract and misdirect. And as your church, we want to be committed to a Christ-focused, Christ-centered Christmas As we open our Bibles now and we review this wonderful story yet again, would you refresh and renew us with the reality of all that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and what a great gift he was. Move among your people now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated as you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1 with me this morning and get your notes positioned to to assist you in your listening. They're inserted in your bulletins if you haven't already noticed those. I was just uh, thinking about what are some of the greatest, most expensive Christmas presents that have ever been purchased. So I whipped out my phone and I Googled it real quick. And it was interesting. The list that came up was a little bit dated um, uh, from the mid-2005 area in their era. But it was interesting to me, there were some celebrity names that I recognized, like Mike Tyson. Um, He was married to uh, some kind of a model, I think her name was uh, Robin Givens, and Mike Tyson, when things were going well in that relationship at that time in his life, for Christmas, bought Robin a 24-carat gold-plated bathtub. It cost him $2.3 million. Now, I was kind of in the back of my mind thinking about my own gift giving and what I might do for Janet, but I decided that one was out. Um, uh, You'll recognize the name Angelina Jolie, won't you? And Brad Pitt. I think they were together, maybe married at one time. I'm not on the cutting edge of... Uh, societal evolution in social things like that. So please, you don't have to come up and correct me or inform me. It's taken me a long time to become this ignorant about this stuff, and I really want to stay that way. But I did recognize those names. I recognized Angelina Jolie's name and Brad Pitt. And um, he evidently, at the time when they were together, back in earlier 2000s, he had a real fascination with um, Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture and the house that he built at, that's called Falling Waters, right? It was a waterfall with a house built into the rocks and a stone house. And, um, and so Angeline, knowing that he really loved that, found a piece of property in California with rocks and a waterfall so that they could hire an architect. And she gave him as his Christmas present this piece of property with the waterfalls for him to build this house. That was just a measly $1.6 million just to lay out for the property. So I thought, no, nah, that's not going to do me either. So I, caught, I saw the name David and Victoria Beckham. I know who they are. And this was 2005 for Christmas. Um, uh, At that point, I'm sure he was at the top of his game in soccer and whatever else he's modeling or whatever, and she as well, and singing. Um, They evidently had some extra money that Christmas because for Christmas, David bought Victoria Beckham a diamond-encrusted handbag for $100,000. 
But it didn't stop there. He also purchased a Rolls-Royce Phantom for a cool half million, 500,000. And, but the real gift was a ruby and diamond necklace that was, that was purchased for $2.4 million. Expensive gifts, aren't they? So I don't know. I was trying to think how to relate to that. I was thinking about gifts that are expensive in my book or things that are practical. Um, I remember a number of years ago, I bought Janet a pair of blue denim jeans that were red flannel lined with that lumberjack plaid. She made a face when she opened them. I thought it was a great idea. I thought I wouldn't mind having a pair of those. You know, it'd keep you nice and warm in the wintertime and you roll the cuffs up and your lumberjack plaid would show. That would just be nice. And that was about 15 years ago. But I realized, tell me if I'm wrong, help me out here. But isn't that lumberjack plaid kind of back in right now? So don't tell her. She's not here this morning. Um, I might try that again, see if I get a better response. I don't know. Probably not, huh? Well, a little bit of fun there, but um, when we open our Bibles to Luke's gospel in chapter one, and we review this ancient story that is so full of meaning and is in some ways we are over familiar with it, I want you to recognize that as we unwrap Christmas this year in our sermon series, we are seeking to find significant value in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, it was better than a diamond-studded handbag or a gold-plated bathtub. It's the most significant gift that could ever have been given and of significant value as well. I mean, that probably is an understatement, isn't it? That Jesus Christ, as a gift from the Father to a lost and dying world, is a valuable gift. That's an understatement. It's the most important thing about us, isn't it? Knowing Jesus Christ. And this Christmas season, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to see uh, Christ in Christmas in a new and a fresh way. Let's read Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. We'll read through verse 38. And I want you to see that right away in the story that this unusual aspect of the Christmas story is emphasized by Luke, the historian who researched this story. He right away is going to use the term virgin to remind us that this is no ordinary birth. Let's read Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, so that would actually be in the context of this story, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary's cousin, an older woman. She's referenced later in the story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. I mean, let's just stop for a minute and let's appreciate that simple phrase. And she was greatly troubled. Here's a girl that the story already identifies as young by definition. And in her culture, she was young and a virgin. That is, she had, was not married and she had not known a man. We know from the context and further detail of the story, she was a wonderful and a pure girl who loved God. 
And there she is, evidently minding her own business, and an angel comes and speaks to her a most um, unusual message and one that you would just think would have rocked her world. Think about it. This angel Gabriel sent from God to the city of Galilee, a place in Galilee named Nazareth, to this virgin who was betrothed, Her name was Mary. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She immediately knew something was up, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting might this be? Why is it that an angel has come to me today to say that I am favored of God? What is he saying to me? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, And he says it again, for you have found favor with God. What are you saying? I have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You are going to give birth to Jesus, a king with a kingdom without end. Wait a minute. I'm not married. I'm not pregnant. I'm finding favor with God. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. She would have understood the prophetic utterances. She would have understood the Old Testament scriptures. She would have been longing and been raised up in a family that longed for Messiah. How her mind must have whirled immediately. But I want you to see the beauty of her immediate humble faith. Notice what she says. And Mary said to the angel. So she's having a conversation with an angel. How normal is that? It's not. How will this be since I am a virgin, she says. Okay, so make sure you understand. She's not questioning that it's going to happen, but naturally as a young, pure young woman who's not married, who isn't with a man, she wants immediately to know and understand what is the mechanism here? How is this going to happen? She wasn't doubting. We can tell from the story. And the angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now there's a clue to the virgin birth right there. He's going to be called Holy and he's going to be called the Son of God, not the Son of a man. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. That was a unusual birth as well, even miraculous. And the angel concludes by giving her maybe the most important bit of information that she's received so far. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now look what Mary's response is. It's immediate, it's humble, it's filled with faith and belief. It is not doubting. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. May it just happen. She she didn't know what it was going to feel like. She didn't know what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen. But the Holy Spirit was going to do something that no one had ever heard of before. And this virgin was going to have a baby. Do you believe this story? Let's flip your page in your notes and let's just clarify what we're talking about here and make sure that there's no misunderstanding. There are many misconceptions about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, by the way. Um, Let's just clarify that what we're saying, that the virgin birth for Mary was an absolutely normal human pregnancy of nine months. So this was a real baby gestating in her in the normal way for nine months. It was, however, absent the involvement of any human male, hence virgin birth. The Bible is clear, as we've just read, that the Holy Spirit is the one who moved and impregnated her with a child that had no earthly father. It was a real physical human child, not a freak. But it was God in the flesh. Now, widely believed around the world and in our own country is one church that teaches uh, that, that Mary was part of an immaculate conception. Let's just clarify, since we're here in our text box, that's not biblical terminology, and it's actually not even talking about Uh, Mary herself. It's not about the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you hear the phrase, an immaculate Mary the immaculate or Mary the immaculate conception, that's actually a reference held by tradition of a belief that her father and mother conceived her in sinlessness and that she herself did not have a sin nature. That's not biblical. Mary literally gave birth to a child who would carry her sin to the cross. And she would be saved like everybody who has ever been saved by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ ultimately. Thirdly, there is a phrase as well that you might hear thrown around and it has to do with perpetual virginity where our topic today is virginity and the ramifications of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? And do you really believe it? And do you understand what you're saying when you say you believe that? But this idea, number three in the text box, of a perpetual virginity is a belief that Jesus was not, Jesus' birth was not a normal birth. And their tradition teaches that the baby, when it was fully ready to be born at nine months, mysteriously passed through the abdominal wall, avoiding the birth canal, therefore maintaining uh, uh, virginity without any disruption of the birth canal. And that's not biblical. That's just a church tradition. So I just want you to make sure that you understand what we're talking about here and what we believe the Bible is teaching here about a young girl who's never known a man who the Holy Spirit will impregnate, and she's going to have a baby, and that baby is going to be the second member of the Godhead put on flesh, in flesh. That is remarkable what you say you believe, people. 
And so it's clear when we read the story, isn't it, that, that there is an emphasis on the virginity of Mary, that there was not the role of a human father, that therefore the child would be holy and would be the son of God. Now, you might not realize it this morning, but this point of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is actually a point of controversy in American church history and in church history at large. For uh, our context, uh, about the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, so that'd be the late 1800s, early 1900s, this concept of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ actually became a flashpoint of debate between two groups of people. The one group of people were called the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists. They got their name from a group of men, pastors and scholars, who wrote a, 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 a several volume book series called The Fundamentals. It was a reaction against the religious movements of the day, largely among denominations in the United States, being influenced by a European higher critical thought, being influenced by a, a scholarliness that was being accepted of the day by such scholars as men like... Um, Charles Darwin and the origin of the species. Scholarly works like that were influencing. Um, uh, if you don't know me very well, I was just being very facetious right there, okay? But that kind of thing was having an impact on churches and pastors and seminaries. And so, in defense, of the word of God, okay, so Charles Darwin and the origin of species began to suggest that there is a, an origin of life that is uh, created outside of the story of scripture. So then in seminaries and so forth, they began to debate this. Well, does the Bible really mean what it means? When it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, does it really mean that God created the heavens and the earth or did somehow uh, a higher deity launch a big bang or what? Or they might not even have believed in the higher deity and yet they stayed religious. Uh, This debate raged at a lot of different levels. Was Adam really a real human being? Ultimately, it bled over into things like the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, though we haven't even thought about it all week long, probably, the the, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ became a focal point of the debate. Now, here's why. The other group, so the fundamentalists, they wrote a series of books called The Fundamentals because they were going to fight for the truth that the Bible is the word of God. They even got a nickname, the fighting fundamentalists, the fighting fundies, because they were willing to fight for the truth of God's word. Not necessarily a fist fight, although there are a few accounts where fists flew, um, but they took strong stands on the word of God. By the way, that's our heritage. Um, Our teens have just met with a group of churches, young people, from the independent fundamental churches of America. They now threw the name international on the end because we have churches in Korea and Indonesia and so forth, or um, anywhere, other places, can't remember where. So independent, what's that mean? free from denominational oversight, an independent church versus a denominational church. Why? Because at the turn of the 20th century, 19th century into the 20th century, they were fighting over the fundamentals of basic Bible doctrine that had always been accepted and considered orthodoxy, but now they were questioning it in seminaries and in denominational churches. And and so 
independent and fundamental. Fundamental what? They're fundamental in our doctrine. We believe the Bible is to be taken at its word, essentially. Okay? And so we identify with that. The modernist, that's a term we don't use much anymore, but it's an identifiable movement of that era that questioned the literal meaning of Scripture. That's ultimately what their problem was, was whether or not the Bible had errors in it. And did they hold to a doctrine called the inerrancy of Scripture? And they did not. And so the modernists and the fundamentalists began to fight over terminology and meaning of words and whether the Bible meant what it said and whether Jesus was who he said he was. And one of the flashpoints became the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The divide to the, so the divide was to the fundamentalist, the virgin birth of Jesus was a guarantee of the uniqueness of the deity of Christ. Can you see that? So if you say you held to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, according to the biblical account, it meant that he had no earthly father, that the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary with the second member of the Godhead, and that Jesus was God in the flesh. So if you denied the virgin birth, it was the same as denying the deity of Christ. So it was like a shortcut at ordinations or in classroom discussions and theological conversations. Well, where are you on the virgin birth? Oh, I believe it was true. I believe it was a literal thing. Oh, all births are miracles. Don't you know that? So the argument would continue. The modernists, to the modernists, the the doctrine of the virgin birth was rejected outright or at least redefined and reinterpreted. The result of the debate was that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ became a simple and a clear way of determining one's view of the deity of Christ. And I've already kind of emphasized that. When we say deity, by the way, we're talking about the godness of Jesus Christ. We use the word deity uh, of the gods of God um, outside of humanity. Of divine status or quality, that is that Jesus was divine, that means that Jesus was a member of the Godhead. The Bible teaches he was the second member of the Godhead. If he had an earthly father, he would have just been another normal human being. Okay? So do you really understand what you're saying when you say you believe the biblical account of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Because if you do, number one, it is a defining statement about your worldview. If you believe the biblical account of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you need to know that's not just words, but that is a defining statement about your worldview. Let's clarify worldview, all right? Let's use my glasses here, okay? Everybody sees the world a certain way, don't we? We understand we, we come at the knowledge of the world around us through a certain grid or framework of understanding. This is a big philosophical conversation, but let's just go to the core of it. What we're talking about here is a divide between people whose worldview, when they put on their worldview glasses and they understand the world that they see, they would fall into the category of the naturalist. The naturalist. The idea is that there is a natural or of nature explanation for everything that exists, okay? So atheists would be in this camp. Many agnostics would be in this camp. They they don't really, they have a hard time getting past 
the natural world and they, and they believe in science and they believe in the physical world. Well, we do too. But the idea is that if you can't explain something naturally, then it's really not explainable. They will have to then force a natural explanation to bring meaning to the world around them. So that's why you can believe something as utterly nonsensical as a Big Bang or that something comes from nothing because when you put on your natural worldview glasses, you absolutely cannot capitulate to the fact that there is a supernatural. And that would be the other kind of broad camp that we're talking about. You put on your worldview glasses and you believe in the supernatural. All right? And so when you believe... And say, as we've just read Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38 and beyond, and you say, I believe that story is true. I believe that. It has something to do with your worldview to be able to say that. It means, for example, that you believe in the existence of God. You cannot be an atheist and believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. At least not the way the Bible tells the story. So your worldview is one that maintains the existence of God. Secondly, you are saying if you believe the virgin birth account biblically stated that you believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have this story without the participation of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, you believe in angels and the existence of angels. And you even believe that angels can talk to people. Did you know that you believe such weird stuff? You haven't been thinking about this lately. When you put on your supernatural worldview glasses, and especially one that is then corralled in by the context of Scripture, you are believing in the God of the Bible. You're believing in the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. Uh, We could add to this that you believe in a triune God if you believe in this story. You believe in angels and you believe that angels can speak to people and represent God and you can believe and you believe that God has made himself known to mankind. He's not out there somewhere in his transcendence unable to communicate to us but that God has revealed himself to people in very specific ways. I mean in John 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word put on flesh and dwelt among us. This story is about revelation. This story is about revelation that the world had never known at that point. And think about it. Mary responded in utter, complete, instant belief with limited revelation. And so we sing and love the song that Buddy Green wrote. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? What's this? Do you believe, Mary, that you actually birthed the Son of God and that he was deity? Absolutely she believed it. Absolutely she knew what was happening. Elizabeth hammered that home, didn't she, in Luke 1, 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There it is. It's undeniable. Mary believed that what the Lord spoke to her through the angel would be fulfilled. And the angel told her, you're going to be having the second member of the Godhead in the form of a baby. It's a crazy story. And his name's going to be Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sin. 
So you need to be careful. I'm warning you this Christmas. It's, uh, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful time of the year. No, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Excuse me. And that has a lot to do with hot chocolate and cookies and inflatables on the lawn. But I want to tell you, if you say that you believe this story, according to the Bible, the way it unfolds, you are saying, I believe in God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in angels. I believe angels can talk to people. I believe that God has made himself known to mankind. I believe in the reality that God is a God of miracles because the, ver- the angel clarified with Mary what I've already emphasized, that belief in the virgin birth demands belief in the supernatural. So when Mary looked at the angel and said, how shall this thing be? It wasn't, I don't think it's going to happen. It was, it's going to happen, but I can't get my mind around how it might happen. And the angel gave her a categorically broad general statement. Basically, he said, don't worry about it. With God, nothing is impossible. What he was saying is we have a supernatural God who does supernatural things. He's a God of miracles. Look what he says. This is to say that not everything that happens can be explained through natural causes. That's that worldview lens. So everything that happens cannot necessarily be explained through natural causes. Luke one thirty seven, for nothing will be impossible with God. As you flip your page, let's just clarify on the notes the meaning of a miracle because this is an abused concept, all right? So a miracle, make sure you have this straight. What we're talking about here is not simply something that is unusual or out of the ordinary, Okay, because we use miracle like that all the time. For the unusual and the out of the ordinary, we call them miracles. Okay, so you're, you're, uh, uh, this happened to me the other day, sort of. I'm at line at the dollar store. My chip had worn out on my MasterCard. We use that a lot and get my L.L. Bean points that I can get um, red lumberjack flannel line blue jeans for free that I can mail back for, for four bucks. I hope she's not live streaming. <laughs> um, so I'm in line at Dollar General store and there's a line all, all of a sudden. There's nobody. Then there's a whole line of people and my chip's not working. And the machine wants it to do three times because my chip was worn out because I'm such a spender. And then I'm ready to trying to s- swipe it, you know. And so you're in line at, and you feel pressure by that line, don't you? And so you're in line and you know, I don't have any money and and so if you, you were there, this is a hypothetical now, I don't carry a purse, but you had a purse and you were digging around in your purse and you had a greeting card and it was going to cost you a dollar and 19 cents. And you're like, oh, and, and you're feeling pressure. You start digging in your purse and you find exactly in change, loose change in the bottom of your purse, a dollar 19 cents. And you're like, whoo, the line is going to be okay. And you're paying your dollar 19 and you go away and you say, that was a miracle. It was not a miracle. It was against the odds. And it was kind of amazing how it turned out. Now, granted, you could get to heaven someday and find out that God put a $1.19 change in the bottom of your purse. And he said, yeah, it really was a miracle. But it probably wasn't a miracle. It was just the happenstance of circumstances that worked in your favor that day, like the day you're raking the leaves, right? And you lose your contact. 
and the leaves are terrible, and you lost your contact. You're very upset there, and, and you can't. You get in the house, you get your glasses on, you're so, you know, I got to look at your contact. You go and you pick up your rake, and you're going to finish raking these leaves, and right there on the handle of the rake is your contact lens stuck to the handle. And you say, That's a miracle, Mabel! It's a miracle. It's not a miracle. Your lens fell out of your eye onto the handle of the rake. It stuck there and you found it. God was not required. Okay? He was not required for that to happen. He just let the physical laws work. Gravity pulled the lens down. The rake handle happened to be in the way. You understand what I'm saying here? You can make up all kinds of stories. So let's be careful about how we use the word miracle because that's, it's not just an unusual or out of the ordinary instant or happening, it is an observable phenomenon that has absolutely no ability to be explained through natural explanation other than God suspended or interrupted natural laws, and he reached into the physical world to rearrange people, circumstances, or events to accomplish his purpose according to his will. If you say you believe in the virgin birth, you believe that. So when Jesus, in the middle of the night, walks on water, and there's no rocks underneath the surface like the old joke goes, and the disciples look out and they're afraid and they see Jesus walking on the water, that's a miracle because it is a disruption of the normal laws of the physical universe that make it that H2O can only be walked on when it's frozen, not when it's liquid. So he interrupted the laws to intersect with a boatload of men who needed to see him in his deity right then. And so when we talk about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, I cannot explain it any further than with God, nothing is impossible. And the Holy Spirit implanted in her a genuine, real conception using her egg whatever else God used, and it was a real person. And you say, you're one of those people? You believe in a miracle like that? And I say, I'm absolutely one of those people. There is no better explanation. It's what the Bible says. And furthermore, when you put on your naturalist lens and begin to try to explain things like this, you actually do sound a lot more foolish than people who have the supernatural lens and can just take God at his word. Don't be embarrassed of your Bible this Christmas. Don't be embarrassed of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It it says a whole lot about you when you say you believe the virgin birth. Furthermore, it is a defining statement about your view of Scripture. It's a defining statement about your view of Scripture. To believe the biblical account of the virgin birth of Christ means that you are affirming absolute belief in, first of all, the truthfulness and the reliability of Scriptures. Because if you're going to point at this story and say it's not true, what else are you going to point at in your book and say it's not true? Secondly, it's, it's a statement about the historical accuracy of the Bible. The Bible is unfolding history with great accuracy here. It's real history. Mary really lived. Joseph was a real guy. Furthermore, it is, it is a statement about the historical accuracy of the historical life of the historical Jesus. He was a real character. He wasn't a phantom. He was a real man who really lived in a real place at a real time. Just like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Tom Jefferson, whoever else you like to think about. Fourthly, 
It's the fulfillment of prophecy. If you say that you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you are saying that you believe in the reliability and integrity of Scripture. You're saying that you believe in the historical accuracy of the Bible. You're saying that you believe in the historicity of Jesus. You're saying that you believe in the fulfillment of prophecy. Let me show you this. It's in Matthew chapter 1. Let's read very quickly Joseph's story, and we're not far from being done. This is Joseph's story. Okay, so Matthew wrote his gospel as a disciple from the perspective of Joseph. Luke, the historian who was not an eyewitness disciple, but a researcher, a physician, and a historian, he did extensive research, compiled his work, and he told the story of Christ's virgin birth from Mary's perspective. We're in Matthew chapter 1, it's verse 18, and notice the similarities in the story, and notice what Joseph believed. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There it is. You believe in the Holy Spirit if you believe in this account. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame... Okay, so he was a a man with a righteous spirit. Can only imagine his confusion with his limited revelation at that time. Resolved then to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel, there it is, you believe in angels. We're We're not having a problem with this, with our supernatural worldview lens. Of the Lord, we believe in God, appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look at it. Here it is, verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. There it is. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord command. Notice, again, like Mary, Joseph had an instantaneous, humble faith where he immediately obeyed. He took his wife, but he knew her not physically until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There it is. Isaiah 7, 14 said that a virgin would conceive. In the history of the kings of Israel, there is no story of a virgin who conceived without the help of a man. It was a prophetic statement that was fulfilled in the son of David through Joseph and Mary. Interesting, isn't it? Thirdly, well, ultimately then, I wanted to make this statement here. The reliability and integrity of the gospel account is at stake in the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that the fighting fundamentalists fought for it. And when the modernists began to suggest that these words don't have meaning and that this isn't really Jesus in the flesh and that you begin to doubt the deity of Jesus Christ because ultimately where this is going to lead in next week's sermon, this week's sermon, the virginity, the birth the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in the virginity of Mary and why it matters. Ultimately, next week, we're going to talk about the humanity of Christ. Why did Jesus then have to put on flesh? Because ultimately, he was born to go to the cross. So all this matters. All this stacks up. 
And the reliability and the integrity of the gospel account is at stake in the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the greatest miracle in all the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you take away the virgin birth, you create a big question about the reality of a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then you start making that into a metaphor. You start making that into just some kind of a feel-good story, a spiritual truth that touches my heart. I'd rather just go deer hunting than do that. You know, it's true. Why do people who do not believe in the veracity of Scripture bother? Why would you bother? It's too much work. It's not that meaningful. If words don't mean what they say and our salvation is not real in Jesus Christ, what do we have? And so the virgin birth of Jesus Christ really matters. Ultimately, number three, it is a defining statement about your view of God and the gospel itself. So when you say you believe in the biblical account of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, number one, it is a defining statement about your worldview. Number two, it is a defining statement about your view of Scripture. And number three, it is a defining statement about your view of God himself and the gospel. So to believe in the biblical account of the virgin birth of Christ means that you are affirming absolute belief in the fact that God desires a relationship with people that's embedded in the story, that God reveals himself to people in the person of Jesus Christ, and that God does for man what man cannot do for himself. Let's see what Paul had to say about this in Galatians 4 as we conclude. Galatians 4, 4 through 8. Notice these verses. Notice the reference. It's at the least a veiled reference to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4. Look what Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, okay, there is a continuum of history. And our sovereign God, as he oversees history, looks at his timeline and he says, now is the right time. That's an interesting study, by the way, even to realize the world conditions at that time, the, the usefulness of the Koine Greek with which to write the New Testament, with which it was written at that time, was just the right time. How all of that came together just right. Huh. God's pretty smart. But when the fullness of time had come, God, you believe in God, if you believe this story, sent forth his son, you believe in the second member of the Godhead, if you believe this story. Look how the ESV translates, born of woman. We don't even talk like that. Born of woman. As opposed to born of man and woman. It's a focus on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Born of woman. Born under the law of Moses, to redeem those who are under the law. The law could not save. We've been talking about that in Hebrews. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Holy Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It means you can have a relationship with God. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. Well, that's a wonderful passage of scripture and it's loaded, but think about it. Ask yourself the question, do you believe in the virgin birth today? If you believe in the virgin birth, you have to believe in the deity of Christ. If you believe in the deity of Christ, it changes everything about you. Look at what Paul said, at just the right time, born of the woman, the Virgin Mary. By the way, that was prophesied earliest in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the proto-evangelium, remember that? The woman shall conceive. 
and bear a son. There's another guarded or veiled reference to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, I believe. Ultimately, he will crush the serpent's head. Reads well, doesn't it? He will crush the serpent's head. Listen, we're not on the losing team because we have a wonderful Lord Jesus. And on the continuum of history, at just the right time, God will continue to unfold his plan of the ages. But let's just focus. If you believe in the virgin birth and you believe in the deity of Christ, do you understand why he came? God came in the flesh. Look what he says. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, to redeem those who were under the law, both of Moses and the law of sin. You know what redeem means? It means to be bought out of and set free. It's a picture from the slave world. When a slave is up on the block and being auctioned off and someone in the back recognizes, I want that one, that guy, that woman, and he buys and he pays a price and that price gives him ownership and with that ownership, he has the right to turn and set that slave free. So we were slaves in bondage to sin and Jesus Christ comes to the auction and he uses his blood as his exchange and he gives his life and his blood so that he could purchase us with his precious blood so that he could set us free from sin so we are redeemed bought out of sin and set free and it doesn't stop there with that comes adoption into his family to the degree that you can look at a holy God that no one's allowed to look at and you can say Abba Papa Father I have a relationship with my heavenly father through Jesus Christ the barriers are all broken down and nothing to fear anymore huh all because of the virgin birth. Because the virgin birth guarantees the deity of Jesus Christ. And if we don't have the deity of Jesus Christ, none of the rest of the story is true. Trust, trust me. No human being could rise from the dead. No human being qualified to hang on the cross and bear the sins of the world and be the substitute lamb for our sin. But that's next week's sermon. The humanity of Christ. I hope you'll be here. So listen, I know how it works. I, our house has been tore up all week and now it's beautiful and I hung wreaths with red ribbons on all the outside windows and I did pretty well. I did pretty well. And you might need a cup of hot chocolate and a certain kind of cookie and a certain kind of black and white movie to make it feel like Christmas to you but will you at least fight against that a little bit and force yourself to revel in the most expensive gift anybody could ever get, the blood of Jesus Christ given us through his son who went to the cross, how the father gave his son to be the savior of the world. And will you meditate on that? And will you hear the gospel in the Christmas hymns? And will you worship this Christmas, even as you shop, even as you bake, even as you have parties? It is a wonderful time of the year, maybe even the most wonderful time, but I think that's the Monday before Thanksgiving. But that's just me. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, will you know that he came to redeem you from the slave market of sin? And by putting your faith and trust in his shed blood, you become his child and adopted into his family. You have to do that, not me. I can't do that for you. You simply admit your sinfulness, believe that Jesus is the Christ, call upon him to be your savior. Let's stand and close in prayer.
What a story, Father. What a book. What a Savior. What a wonderful Lord Jesus. What a precious Mary. What a faithful Joseph. What a good and loving God you are that out of your kindness and your benevolence, you saw a need and you met that need, not giving us some 24-carat plated gold bathtub, but you gave us your son and his precious blood. Would you please, Father, help us unwrap Christmas in a very special way this year that it would be so meaningful? Would you draw people unto yourself? Would you help people to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up as their Savior today and by faith accept him as their Lord and Savior? We commit ourselves to you, asking for your blessing for another week should you tarry. It's with grateful hearts that we thank you for this time together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.